We're going to read the Bible together now, and we're turning to John's Gospel, John chapter 11. And we're going to read John 11, verses 1 to 16 together. You'll find it on page 897 of the Pew Bibles, page 897. Uh, This is the beginning of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. And over the next few Sunday mornings here in church, we're going to be thinking about this story, uh, taking a little bit more time than we normally would just to work through this entire chapter. So our reading this morning is John chapter 11, and we're starting at verse 1, and we're reading down to verse 16, and it's page 897 of the Pew Bibles. This is God's word to us, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and, were, and, are going, and, and you are going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Let's pray together before we look at the Bible. Father, we thank you again for who you are. You're the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. You know better than we do. And we pray that we would see that in this passage today. In your perfect wisdom, you have given us the scriptures so that we might know you through the Lord Jesus, but also so that we might live for you in a hostile world. We pray that you would speak to us all and challenge those who don't yet know Christ as well. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a series that will prepare us for Easter. It seems strange to be thinking about Easter already, given that Christmas is just over. Uh, Easter falls at the end of March this year, and between one thing or another, I've only got five Sunday mornings between now and then. For that reason, we're going to work through a shorter series. It's going to be a deep dive on John 11. We've been through similar series before, and most recently Luke 15 and Isaiah 40. And what we do is focus on a chapter of scripture and really get into the, 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 the detail of it. 
Uh, John 11 is another great chapter for us to do a deep dive on. One, because it's 57 verses long. Two, because it's theologically rich. And three, because it's so pastorally relevant and helpful. Uh, One person has said this about this chapter of Scripture. They've said, For grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, nothing was ever written like it. Uh, We're calling this little series Goodbye to Goodbyes. Uh, That's really the umbrella title for the series, and that comes from the children's book by the same name on the same story that some of you might have at home. Uh, That title also reflects the fact that this chapter, the story of Lazarus, encapsulates the the, the Jesus story as a whole. This is a chapter, this is a story about death and resurrection life. Uh, And in a sense, there are no more important topics for us to think about and talk about and study. A few weeks ago in church, we said that culture doesn't talk about death anymore. It would rather talk about anything else. This chapter is not only going to force us to think about that issue, but it's also going to provide us with the, with the solution to the problem that we all face. As well as that, this series is going to prepare us for Easter because Lazarus's resurrection becomes the reason for Jesus' death. This chapter will lead us very naturally to think about Easter and the death of, uh, and resurrection of our Saviour. And what we're going to do is break this chapter into different sections. And this morning we're thinking about verses 1 to 16. And then next week we'll move on to the next part. Our series title is Goodbye to Goodbyes. But each week we'll have a title for the sermon. And this morning the sermon title is Jesus Knows Better Than We Do. Jesus Knows Better Than We Do. Uh, at home we're quite big fans of the 1996 film Matilda. Uh, you might have seen it. It was maybe one of those films that... Uh, brings childhood memories flooding back. It's based on the Roald Dahl book, uh, the, the Roald Dahl novel, and it tells the story of a little girl with tele- telekinetic abilities who uses her powers to deal with her difficult family and, and tyrant of a school principal. Uh, there's a, a famous scene in the movie when Matilda's dysfunctional dad is berating her for interfering in his business affairs. He loudly tells her, I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a memorable line from a classic film, but there's a sense in which some of us might think that that's a reasonable summary of the way in which God thinks of us or the way in which God treats us. Some of us here this morning might think that God talks down to us or treats us in the same way that a dictator treats his subjects, his rule is, is harsh, his, his conduct is severe, his words are abrupt. Uh, on the other hand, though, that's, that, that, that line is maybe a, a, an abbreviated version of how we speak to and relate to God. We, we have so reduced our sense of his holiness and, and glory and perfection that we think that we can just click our fingers at him and he will do our bidding. I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now the thing is, God doesn't treat us like that. You just have to read the Bible to find that out. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, as Psalm 103 reminds us. And if we speak to him like that, then we haven't understood one of the most vital things about him. He knows best and always does what is right. It's as our call to worship has reminded us this morning, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. That's what we're going to see this morning. 
verses 1 to 16 of John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus knows better than we do. We're going to see how in a moment, but before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about John's gospel as a whole. The purpose of John's gospel is that the details and facts about the Lord Jesus are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's a direct quote from John himself. John sets out the purpose of his book at the end of the book, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So that's the reason that John's gospel was written in the first place, and it's also the reason that it's in the Bible at all. It, It was written so that you, listening to me now, might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Now, John as a writer is very different to the other gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present roughly the same material in slightly different styles for their own specific audiences. But John comes at things in a completely different way. The first half of his gospel contains seven signs that are a demonstration of Jesus' identity. Jesus changes water into wine, heals an official son, heals an invalid, feeds a multitude, walks on water, and heals a man born blind. That's six The raising of Lazarus is the seventh sign. The seventh and final sign is both the climax to the signs that we read about in chapters 2 to 11 and also the introduction to the passion narrative in chapters 12 to 21. In other words, this chapter is a pivot. It's a hinge point in John. Most importantly of all, though, through this sign in this story, we see that what brings life to Lazarus Lazarus brings death to Jesus, but what brings death to Jesus brings life to the world. Jesus will soon die and be resurrected. What happens to Lazarus is a picture of what he will have to go through, but it's also a picture of what believers throughout time will go through as well. We're skipping ahead in the story a little bit. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 16 this morning. The heading that we're giving this section is Jesus knows better than we do. How do we see that through these verses? Well, we see it through three things. First of all, Jesus' surprising reaction. Secondly, Jesus' calm authority. And thirdly, Jesus' complete control. Those headings are going to be our structure this morning. Let's see how Jesus knows better than we do. But then by first of all looking at his surprising reaction. And this first point is going to be a little bit longer than the other two. The surprising reaction comes in verses 5 and 6. But before that, we have some background information on the family. Uh, Verse 1 says that Jesus was involved with a certain family. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We're not told the names of the people at whose wedding Jesus turned water into wine in chapter 2. We're not told the name of the Samaritan woman that Jesus dealt with in chapter 4, or of the official and his son in the same chapter, or of the man who was lame for 38 years in chapter 5, or of the man who was born blind in chapter 9. But here in chapter 11, three people are named. John mentions how Mary anointed Jesus' feet in verse 2. In terms of John's record, this hasn't happened yet. John doesn't tell us us about it until chapter 12. But the first readers would have known the story. Three people are named because these are three people that Jesus loves. Now, this is actually the first time in John's gospel that we read about Jesus loving people. So far, we've been told that God loves the world, that people love darkness, that the Father loves the Son, and that those who have God as their Father love Jesus. But here we're told that Jesus loves people, specifically three people, 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is ill, and his condition is bad enough for his sisters to call for Jesus. Verse 3 tells us the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So this is the ancient version of a WhatsApp. Get here, ASAP, Jesus. Lazarus is sick. What's his condition, his diagnosis? We're not told, but it sounds like he's in mortal danger. Why else would Jesus be summoned at such short notice? The sisters expect that Jesus will drop everything and rush to them, but his response to their message in verse 4 is not what we would necessarily expect. Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Those who heard him say that probably thought, it's a strange response, but let's get the bags packed. But to that, Jesus says, no, 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 we're staying here. And this is his surprising response. Look at verses five and six. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The word translated loved here in verse five is different to the, to the word love the sisters use in verse 3. In verse 5, the word is agape, that unstoppable highest type of love, the love of God that Jesus shows us and, and, and gives to us. Well, with that in mind, we might expect verse 6 to say, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he packed a bag, jumped on a horse, and rode as fast as he could to get there. But his reaction is surprising. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Really? He waited. He went about his normal, ordinary day, everyday business before going. Why? What's he, what's he doing? What's he playing at? So, so, sometimes you hear people say, Jesus was a good man. He was. He was perfect and sinless in every way. But nobody around him at this point thought that he was a good man because he stayed where he was. Imagine the disciples murmuring among themselves, what, what are we going to do? What, what do you mean, what are we going to do? He doesn't want to go. We, we, we need to go. You, you, you know how much he, the, the, he means to him. I, I know we need to go. I, I tried to tell him, but he wouldn't listen. Why, why would he do such a thing to them? Have you ever asked questions like that? God, what, why are you making me wait? God, why do I have to watch someone that, that I love so much suffer? God, I have, I have prayed for this person for years, but nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. You ever question the goodness of God when there's been no response? Nobody at this point in John 11 thinks that Jesus is a good man. But look carefully at how his delay is explained in verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What John is emphasizing is that Jesus' decision to delay is a sign of his love. Jesus delays going to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to strengthen their love and faith in him. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, hang on a second, hang on. This is maybe the bit that tips you over the edge. Is this really what Jesus is doing here? Yes, it is. Jesus knows better than we do. And his reaction to this crisis is surprising. And his timing and his work in your life might be surprising as well. But putting whatever it is that you're going through to the side for just a moment, 
Have you ever asked these questions? Why did God not do something about the effects of the fall shortly after they happened? So Adam and Eve sin. Why could God just not have sorted it out there and then? Sorted out sin forever there and then. Well, why did it take so many years for him to send a Messiah? And, and why has Jesus not returned? If Jesus is coming back, the world is so wicked and terrible, so out of step with God, well, why doesn't Jesus just come back right now? Well, this story teaches us several things about God's delays. The first is that they are inevitable. Inevitable to the extent that we are finite creatures and that only God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. But being finite creatures, there's also no guarantee that our, our desires or wishes are the best thing for us. We think that we know what's best for us, but because we're sinful, what we want has to be colored by that truth. As well as that, God's delays don't contradict his love. He, he knows best. The, the, the second thing the story teaches us about God's delays is that they're not final. He will work things out in his own way and in, and in his own time. That will probably be later than we would like or would have chosen. But from his perspective, it'll be at the right time. He's the best of timekeepers. He's never late for his appointments. And the third thing is that his delays are a sign of his love. Have you ever thought about your situation with that in mind? God's delays, God's timings are a sign of his love. That whatever you're going through, is to strengthen your love and faith in Christ. All that happens to us is well done, done in the, in the best moment, by the right instrument, and in the right time. Now, now the gospel, the story of Jesus, is, is possibly the best example of that. The gospel is the story of God doing all things well, not all things easily. He could have skipped the bit where Jesus died on the cross, but he chose not to. God's ways are not our ways. They're much better. Jesus knows better than we do. And in this story, we read about his surprising reaction. We, we also read about his calm authority. Uh, that, that's the second thing in, we see in this passage. And we're going to pick up the pace now with these next two points. In verse 7, two days after Jesus has received Mary and Martha's message, he tells the disciples, okay, now we're going to Judea. Let's go. Let's get ready to go. And they're a little bit unsure. That's actually understating it. They don't want to go. They, they think it's an awful idea. At the end of chapter 10, we're told that the Jews tried to arrest Jesus, but that he escaped from their hands. In verse 8, the disciples remind Jesus of this. They sort of say, Jesus, do you remember those guys that we met the other day? Well, they were trying to take you and kill you and stone you, and now you want to go back and see them again? We, we just don't think this is a very good idea. In some ways, this shows how, how mixed up and wound up the disciples are. On the one hand, they're probably thinking, it's really weird that Jesus didn't go and see Lazarus straight away. But on the other hand, they're saying, no, don't go because it's dangerous, which it is. They're, they're all over the place. Jesus' reply to their objections in verse 8 is to the point. For verses 9 and 10 tell us, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. But back in chapter 9, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. He said that he would be that light as long as he was in the world, but that night was coming. With that in mind, what Jesus says in verses 9 to 10 seems to mean that he's confident that his opponents 
can do nothing to him until the day ends and the night comes. The day is the appointed time of his ministry. The night is the time after the light of the world leaves the world. Now, how do we summarize all of that? The disciples are wound up. They're worried about Jesus' safety, worried that the Jews are going to snatch him and kill him. And he says, it's all right. Don't panic. I'm actually the one in charge here. Jesus shows calm authority to ease the disciples' fears. Jesus' calm authority has a lot to say to us in a world of mass hysteria. One of my favorite films is Ghostbusters, Who You Gonna Call? There's a scene in the film where the end of the world is coming. The Ghostbusters are meeting with the mayor of New York and he asks what it's going to be like, what the end of the world is going to be like. And one of the Ghostbusters tries to describe it and he says, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. We live in a world of mass hysteria. Strikes, abnormally warm weather, abnormally cold weather, war in Ukraine, war in Gaza, countries like Ecuador experiencing civil war, governments in disarray. If, if you watch the news for any length of time, all you'll, all you'll hear is hysteria. Things are awful. Don't leave your house. It's not safe. But counter that to the calm authority that Jesus shows here. It's all right. Don't panic. I'm actually the one in charge here. And if you know the light of the world, if you've trusted in him and his light is in you, then that allows you to look at the world through completely different lenses. It's not out of control. It's in control. It's in his control. Jesus knows better than we do. In this story, we read about his surprising reaction, his calm authority, and his complete control. That's the third thing we see, his complete control. In verses 11 to 16, Jesus spells out why he and the disciples are going to Bethany. He says that Lazarus has fallen asleep in verse 11. The disciples think that it's a nap, but verse 13 tells us that it isn't a nap. Jesus means death. And he says that explicitly in verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. In the same way that Jesus has delayed going to the family out of love for them, so the delay is going to be good for the disciples. They are going to see the the full extent of Jesus' power displayed. Lazarus is dead. Of that there can be no doubt now. But Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Now there are two things that tell us that in verses 11, 11 to 16. First, Jesus says that Lazarus is dead in verse 11. But no one has told him. No one has, come to him. no one has come to him and said, Lazarus has died. Your friend has died. No one has told him. He's clearly able to know things of which he has not been informed. And second, notice how Jesus refers to Lazarus at the end of verse 15. But let us go to him. Let us go to him. Strange, isn't it? Him. Go to a person. He doesn't say, let's go and see the body. He doesn't say, let's go and see the corpse. He doesn't say, let's go and see the family. He says, let us go to him. In other words, he is going to do something about Lazarus's death, something that not even the most faithful and passionate disciple could imagine. After Jesus' explanation of the situation, Thomas blurts out, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas pops up in John's gospel three times, 11, 16, 14, 5, and 20, 24. In his first two appearances, he hasn't believed in Christ. 
He comes to that realization in chapter 20. Here in chapter 11, it's hard to know how to read his words. His words are probably ironic in the sense that he doesn't realize the truth of them. He thinks that he's going to Judea with Jesus to die in the literal sense. The truth in what he says is that to die with Jesus is what it means to follow him. If you want to have eternal life with Jesus, you have to be ready to die with him. If you want to have eternal life with Jesus, it will mean submitting to his complete control over all areas of your life. So that's the first part of the story, goodbye to goodbyes, part one. Jesus knows better than we do. We've seen his surprising reaction, his calm authority, and his complete control in this passage. And the stage is now set. Lazarus was ill. Jesus was told. He delayed for two days. He eventually sets off. And by that point, Lazarus is definitely dead. His uneven breathing had become less and less regular and had finally stopped. His exhausted sister's hearts were broken. They prepared their brother for burial. They wrapped him in a linen gown, poignantly called a traveling dress. They covered him lovingly with bandages and spices. And then Mary and Martha led a procession to the grave. At the grave, there was a little service, some memorial speeches and touching tributes. After the service, the family trudged home, their lives forever changed, never to be the same again. All of that happens in the gap between verse 16 and verse 17. Because what are we told in verse 17? Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. The stage is set. Lazarus is dead. The family is in ritual mourning. They've said goodbye. They have no hope left. But Jesus is coming. And he knows better than they ever could. His delay is out of love so that they might see who he is and believe that he is the one who can end death's tyranny and reign. The cliffhanger we're left with is, what will happen to Lazarus? And how will the sisters react? Will they believe in Jesus? For grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, nothing was ever written like this story. We'll come to those questions next week, but that cliffhanger is a good question for you as well. Having seen what we've seen this morning about Jesus, having seen his surprising reaction, his his calm authority, his complete control, will you believe in him? That's the reason John's gospel was written. It's the reason this story was written. John 11 is in the Bible so that you, listening to me now, might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. That's the question we're going to come back to at the end of every sermon in this little series. Will you believe in him? Will you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you haven't already? Will you believe in the one who has the power to say goodbye to goodbyes forever? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story in John's gospel. We thank you that it has so much to teach us about your ways and your work in our lives. We pray that you would help us to trust your timings and to remember that Jesus knows best and help us to rest in the fact that he shows calm authority in a world of mass hysteria 
and that he has complete control over everything that happens to us and happens in our world. Father, we thank you for so great a saviour. We thank you that he has been to the cross to bear our punishment, that he has risen from the grave so that we might have new life in him. We pray that you would help us all to believe in him, all to trust him, all to follow him. And we pray that you'd speak to us as we continue this series in the weeks that lie ahead. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.